The global outbreak of COVID-19 has made the world of retail almost unrecognizable. But what trends and changes are we seeing in the way consumers pay? Retail Relay is your weekly bite-sized update brought to you by CMSPI. CMSPI is an independent global payments consultancy that helps merchants enhance and optimize their end-to-end payment strategy. With transparency into trends across different industries, channels, and continents, as well as visibility of the market coming from hundreds of merchants across the globe every year, we're able to analyze the retail space in detail. Every week, we publish a report with the latest global trends and changes during the pandemic. And in each podcast episode, we'll discuss the key new trends from the report with information we get on the last full week of trade. Hello and welcome to CMSPI's Retail Relay. I'm Robbie, speaking out of Manchester in the UK. And I'm Callum, speaking out of Atlanta in Georgia in the US. And in this episode, we'll be going through the trends we've gathered for the week beginning 25th of May up until the 31st. Now, as always, we're going to put the focus onto three topics, starting off with the latest retail recovery trends that we've seen from this week's data. We're going to share our forecasts for next year and where we think the future of each industry lies. Finally, we're going to look at the future of payments and particularly open banking in Europe and how it could change the payments landscape forever. Our first topic of the day is looking at these retail trends from the last week of data. And it is, again, good news for the vast majority of the industries that we've covered. In terms of the headline numbers, we're now down $168 billion on expected spend, which amounts to, for this week, 91% of expected spend actually happening. So we've hit that 90% threshold from last week and actually improved on that again. So very, very positive. In terms of some of the individual industries, we always talk about apparel, but once again, apparel has performed very, very well. And we're seeing a bit of a pattern with the recovery and growth of apparel over the past couple of months, which seems to be in line with rental and other outward going payments versus when people in America essentially get paid their their wages or their salary. So Cal, can you explain kind of what we're seeing in apparel in terms of that those trends and why we think that might be? Yeah, so the, the great news of the apparel industry is that we're now in a in a net positive position throughout the pandemic, which is absolutely fantastic. The only other gro- the only other industry that we track that's positive is is grocery. So fantastic news there. Um, only as as Robbie just said, we think that what's driving this is firstly stimulus check which started coming in in mid-April. And we noticed a huge surge on the Wednesday that the stimulus check arrived, but we've continued to see uplifts since then. The second catalyst appears to be paydays. So in the US, it's normal to be paid twice a month, once on the 1st and once on around about the 15th. And we tend to observe that those two weeks, uh, the last month or two have been stronger. And the third area of improvement is to do story openings. So... What we've seen in the last couple of weeks is a huge surge of apparel spending in stores that have reopened. Um, on our index, I believe the card present spend is up to 92. So that's only 8% down on where it would normally be. And to think that 
it was down at pretty much zero for more than a month. That's a fantastic recovery. What we expected, though, is that that card present spend in store would cannibalize card not present spend for apparel merchants. But it doesn't seem to have done that. We're seeing the online spend is still really high, but the card present spend has picked up. So kind of best of both worlds for the apparel industry. And the interesting thing will be to what extent we're able to sustain that. And it's a very similar story for fuel, although, of course, fuel doesn't have the advantage of being able to do anything online, really. But the seventh successive week of growth, and they're now up to just 24% under expected revenue. So they've crossed that three quarters of, of revenue mark. But actually, on the Saturday, the 30th, we saw the volume of fuel spend up at 94% of expected levels. So in some ways, fuel is almost back at, at normal spending, which is a, a fantastic story. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you if you speak to a fuel merchant, they'll often tell you that they track volume of transactions more than value uh, because they think the value is affected by exogenous factors such as oil prices that they don't have a lot of control over. So that 94% is probably the figure that most fuel merchants would be internally working with and although obviously that's on a saturday that's on a weekend day you know the, the dollar amount's still down lots of reasons why it's not a perfect story and of course the industry still lost tens of billions throughout the pandemic this is great and the way it's going we're possibly going to see a day in the next two weeks whereby fuel spend in terms of transaction volume is actually above baseline levels. And that would be a, a fantastic threshold to cross. So fingers crossed we, uh, we get there soon. Yeah, that would be great to see. And the way the trends are going, it looks like it's it's inevitable now. One industry though, that's maybe not recovering to quite the, the same levels that we saw pre-pandemic is the restaurant sector. And I think there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. So restaurants still down 22% on expected spending. And that's the same actually as, as last week. So no real improvement there, even with easing lockdowns. And we think that that's most likely driven by the reduced capacity and almost the completely new business model that restaurants have to operate, where you have on one hand, store closures, meaning that revenues are down because they can't accept anything from those. But also for the stores that are still open, social distancing measures mean that restaurants are now operating at a half, a third capacity. And so the revenue forecasts that they were seeing before the pandemic are just not going to stack up against how they actually have to run their businesses currently. Yeah, I'm more bullish on the fuel industry medium term than I am on restaurants. Fuel, I can see people being reluctant to use public transport, people using cars, end of work from home, store reopenings, all these things catalyst to, to see that it's very possible the fuel industry will be back at 100% within the next few weeks or a couple of months. A little bit pro more problematic for restaurants because really it's very difficult to see when social distancing is going to end. That's probably going to be when there's a, a vaccine and who knows when that's going to be. I think the, the restaurant industry has done very well to get to 78% capacity. Obviously, that's driven by QSR. It's driven by delivery and takeout. And now it's been driven by some reopenings of restaurants. But while there's still limited capacity, really struggling to see how they're going to get up to close to that 100%. So it wouldn't surprise me if it kind of tails off a little bit over the next few weeks at, at around about that. 80% capacity mark. I hope I'm wrong. And, and certainly I think we'd all hope that there's a, 
a vaccine and a kind of solution soon, but uh, the losses might continue. But it's only really restaurants where we're actually seeing a maybe not quite so positive story because general retail had a big boost this week. Grocery is still doing relatively well. It was up 4% last week. So the overall narrative is that actually retail is now on course to to perform at expectations over the next couple of weeks. And if we'd said that a couple of months ago, then you know that would be a, a very, very optimistic view. So I think that the recovery has been good so far, and we look forward to see how that progresses over the next few weeks. So in summary, then, we've seen an expected spend of just over $1,000 billion since the end of February and customer spending of just under $850 billion there. So we've lost about the size of the GDP of Algeria or the annual revenue of Google. But the story is very much positive for this week and the outlook does look good for retail as a whole. So moving on to our second topic of the day, and it is a continuation of our first topic almost, where rather than looking at the previous actual trends that we've seen, we're going to shift the focus towards what we think is going to happen over the coming year. And there's obviously a lot of uncertainty in the market at the moment. There's uncertain terms around whether a second peak will emerge, whether lockdowns will have to be enforced for a prolonged period or at the very least social distancing. And of course, that means many different things for the retailers that we track. Now, the way we've looked at our forecasting in the past is taking a bull and bear view. And for viewers that haven't seen the document, the bull view is essentially that everything is going to go very well for the industry. It means there's no second peak. It means spending returns relatively quickly. And it means that there's a bit of an uptick in the winter trading months as well. On the flip side, you have the bear scenario where there's maybe not such great news. There's potentially a second peak. There's a prolonged recession from people losing their jobs and ultimately less spending on retail goods. So we looked at that a few months ago now, actually, for our original retail payments review and categorized the different industries into where we thought they would end up in three months, six months, and 12 months. And for the full year 2020, just for some rough numbers, we thought that the bullish view would be that in total, retail spending would lose $24 billion to $150 billion. And the bear range would be between $450 and $500 billion dollars of lost spend. So obviously we sit at the moment at 168 billion, but like we said, spending is recovering relatively well for lots of industries. So overall we are, or it seems that we are leaning more towards that bull view that we took a few months ago, which is obviously very positive news. Yeah. I mean, what I would have to emphasize here is the nature of some of the maths of this. So there's about 30 weeks left in this calendar year. Obviously these figures that Robbie used as discussed here off of the calendar year 2020. And we're speaking about a situation where we're losing maybe eight to $10 billion a week at the moment 
And, you know, obviously that's very good compared to what's what happened initially. But if we were to lose $10 billion a week for 30 weeks, that's $300 billion. And on top of your $168 billion already lost, that's $468 billion, which is pretty much in the middle of the bear range that Robbie described there. So really, the bear scenario might sound huge. It might sound way off. But all that is would be a continuation of the current trends that we're speaking about now. So that would just be restaurants not recovering further. And we mentioned that in the first section. That would be, you know, fuel stagnating. That would be grocers maybe cooling off, apparel cooling off. That would just be a continuation of the current trends. So the bull scenario does rely on a recovery. And obviously, as you said, Robbie, there's no guarantee we're going to get that recovery at the moment. So yeah, we're definitely optimistic. Certainly a lot of the, the core figures that we're getting that would dictate the success of of where we go to bull and bear are leaning towards bull but you know the bear scenario is is feasible as well and we shouldn't rule out the possibility of that yes and within those recoveries as well in the original analysis that we looked at we had each of the individual industries almost categorized by the type of recovery that we might see so originally we said that apparel could be either a U-shaped or a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped being you know, a steep drop down that then eventually has a, a bottoming out effect and then relatively long period of, of recovery back to original levels. A V-shaped curve being one where volumes drop off a cliff, but then once things reopen, you then have a very quick rebound to the expected levels. We also had N-shaped curve as well. So where you have a, an initial spike and then maybe prolonged period of, of good performance as well. And then the L-shaped, which is the, the worst curve where you have a massive drop and then a prolonged period of very, very low sales. So apparel, like I mentioned, was in the U or V category. We had grocery in the, the N-shaped category, fuel as well, U or V, and restaurants, U or L. And the, the outlook for restaurants back then was very, very um, negative expecting that people might make a permanent shift away from restaurants to grocery spending. So Cal, I want to throw this to you actually. Which of these do you think were accurate estimates that we had at the beginning of the retail payments review? And which of them do you think we now need to review based on what we've seen? Well, the least accurate one was apparel. Apparel we thought was probably going to be a a U or a V, as, as you mentioned, apparel's probably looking more like a Nike tick at the moment because <laughs> um, it's obviously we've seen a down and then a, a big surge up as a result of the stimulus check and it's kind of sustained that a little bit. So, you know, apparel is definitely the one that surprised us in a good way. Grocery at the time, we said we think it was going to be an N, i.e. you've got a big surge up and then it goes it goes down a little bit, a bit, a bit afterwards. That's probably broadly what we've seen. Fuel, if you look at it, is a beautiful U-shaped curve. I mean, it, it really does follow U because what we see is consistently that improving two or 3% week on week. And I think you said seven consecutive weeks of growth now in the, in the fuel industry. So that's definitely a U, which is which is what we expected. Restaurants is is the difficult one. I mean, if we if we isolate QSRs, it probably is a, a, a U or a V. I mean, if we're looking at dining restaurants... It's it's probably an L with a, a, a slight gradient on that, yeah. that bottom part. It's it's not looking like no one's going to restaurants at all anymore, but it's certainly not getting back to the levels that we saw 
pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's going to be a very long year, I would imagine. And for some individual merchants, a lot of individual restaurants, unfortunately, it is going to be an L because a lot of them are, are not reopening. I mean, just anecdotally here in Atlanta, there's three or four that I'm aware of of browsing restaurants that aren't reopening. I don't know what you guys are seeing in, in Manchester, but yeah, it's that that certainly at the moment is the is the industry I'm most concerned about. And that definitely could could end up being a uh, very prolonged you or as I say for many merchants now. Absolutely. So it's clear that there's still uncertainty and the risk of a second wave of cases looms large. But for much of retail, pent up demand, as we've discussed on previous episodes, could actually save their year. And if anyone wants the full numbers on our estimates that we've revised this time, then you can see those on the full Resale Payments Review. For our final topic of the day, we've looked at the future of retail, but now to the future of payments. And something that has been heralded as the next generation of payments for merchants has been open banking. And for listeners that aren't aware, Open banking itself is just a concept and essentially is the opening up of data that is held by your banks. So the bank that you hold a current account with opening up of your financial data to third parties. Previously, your bank had a complete monopoly over your financial data and were able, if they were innovative, to produce products based on that information. But the problem was that a lot of banks or almost every legacy bank wasn't doing anything innovative and new and competitive with your data. So regulators across Europe have looked at opening up this data via regulation to the third parties so that they can access this. But what does that mean for payments? It means that new businesses called payments initiation service providers, bit of a mouthful, and the acronym PISP isn't much better. But All they mean in practice is that a third party can make a bank transfer payment on your behalf from your account. So it's a very simple concept. You make bank bank transfers yourself, maybe every day, at least every week. And all this is doing is giving the power to a third party to actually do that for you, of course, with your full consent. Now that's really exciting because as most of you will be aware, it doesn't cost you any money to make a bank transfer between your own accounts. And for the third party, their costs are relatively low. A lot of their costs are in actually setting up these connections with your bank. So overall for merchants, then if they can get customers to use these third party providers, then ultimately the costs are very, very low. It's very secure because it's the banks themselves that are actually the ones authenticating and allowing the customer to make that payment. So it seems to tick all the boxes for merchant payments. It's secure, it's low cost, and ultimately could be relatively frictionless as well, especially with strong customer authentication coming in on all other consumer payments in Europe. So it is a really exciting payment method and payment type. And some of you might already have experienced open banking through apps like Yolt, for example, 
where you're able to see all of your different bank accounts on a single view, on a single app. And that is sort of the consumer benefit to open banking. And ultimately, the ideas for those apps to be able to make payments on your behalf as well. Now, the original date where open banking was supposed to come in in full, at least in the UK, was 2018. And if you aren't aware of Yolt, then you can be forgiven because in general, the uptake of these payments initiation services in particular have been very, very muted. And there's not a huge amount of customer awareness. And even on the merchant side, there's very few retailers that actually use the payment method. So overall, we've seen a real lack of growth and progress, maybe not on the capability side, but certainly on the merchant and consumer uptake side. Yeah. So in order to get a solution off the ground, you need free moving parts, really. You need the merchant to want to accept the payment method and maybe encourage it. You want the consumer to want to use the payment method and you need the issuer will be the, the consumer's bank to participate within that system. I mean, obviously, in the case of open banking, I don't think there will be any lack of merchant appetite. But as you say, Robbie, the issue is on the, the issuer and the consumer side. I mean, on the consumer side, obviously, they've you know, become very familiarized with Visa and MasterCard card products. I mean, ways around that is you can always offer incentives and loyalty and rewards, et cetera, for an open banking solution. That's one way around it. And particularly as a large merchant, you'd have the ability to do that. But there's definitely a problem in the issuer side. I mean, the, the issuers, I mean, even in you know, since regulation in Europe are getting 20 and 30 basis points for uh, of interchange for card products. And that seemingly is more than they would expect to get from an open banking solution where they might conceivably even get nothing so i mean even that has been enough to to sort of discourage the banks from really wanting to to push this and certainly in my experience and can you imagine what that would be like in the us where your credit card interchange is 200 basis points it's difficult and it's you know from a merchant perspective it's a very very difficult nut to crack yeah and i suppose in the uk you know we are seeing signs of this progress and for example recently true layer who are one of the most prominent open banking providers um, in Europe have been given a contract by the UK government to process tax payments. And if anyone's seen the interface previously, then you know there's a huge surcharge for paying via credit card or American Express. So this could actually save consumers a lot of money and obviously saves the, the government a lot of money on actual processing fees as well. But I wanted to touch on, you mentioned the US there, Cal, and there isn't really an equivalent in the US yet. But we have faster payments rails, which are kind of a key part of the open banking puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, as you know, Robbie, in the UK, faster payment rails have existed for many years with, with Bocalink. I think it's fair to say the UK has been pretty disappointed. I think there was a, a hope, maybe even an expectation a few years ago that faster payments in the UK would enter the consumer payment space. Certainly, there's no reason why not, no technological reason why not. But ever since Vocalink got bought by MasterCard for was it, 800 million pounds, we've just seen no appetite whatsoever to, to do that because obviously it would be uh, it would be competition. And personally, I believe that the competition authorities should have vetoed that deal. I really never understood the reasons why not. Because of that, when it comes to the US, there's been a strong view 
amongst merchant advocates that the first payment solution needs to be operated by the Fed, which is obviously the, the central bank. And there's been a lot of pressure on the Fed to do that. And we were delighted when last year the, the Fed announced the the Fed Now Solutions, which is which is their faster payment solution, and there's a long way to go. I don't think there's a hope that it's going to enter into the market till 2023. So obviously, it's a long term rather than a short or a medium term consideration. But certainly, there's a hope that you know the Fed will come in and they'll they'll view this more objectively. It'll be separated from the commercial pressures that Visa and Mastercard would apply on privately owned competitor. I would say, and there's you know there's real hope that it can penetrate the retail payment space, but a long way to go, lots and lots of pitfalls until then. So we'll have to see what happens. And I guess we we look to the recent merger and acquisition history of the big card schemes, Visa and MasterCard, for where the industry is heading. And you mentioned MasterCard purchasing Vocalink, um, but Visa very recently have purchased Plaid, who may be a not very well-known company. But Plaid actually provides the connections into all of these customer banks to allow open banking payments. Um, so Plaid does all the work in integrating to APIs and can then facilitate that data transfer. And Visa actually paid $5 billion for Plaid. So it's clear that they see at least a future where open banking is used for some of the market. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, Robbie, here, you've, you've stumbled upon the locus of the problem. And the problem is, I mean, card payments are the, the present of payments, and there's any doubt about that, but technologically, are probably not the future. And obviously, Visa and MasterCard are very dominant within card payments, but, you know, as of until recently, not really had any presence in digital payments, so there'd be long-term concerns. The problem is that Visa and MasterCard are both reporting, what, $10 billion there are thereabouts of profit every year virtually bottomless pits worth of funds to deal with. So we've got the funds to buy up any innovative, you know, niche, attractive looking competitor that enters the digital payment space like Plaid. And they're not the only one. I mean, and there's been Earthport, there's been lots of others. I mean, I mentioned Vocalink earlier. I think we came up with a table, didn't we, of their acquisitions in the last five years and came up with like 20 and I don't even think it was exhaustive. So there's so many acquisitions like that, but they've, they've got the funds to do it. I mean, in the same way, we've got the funds to throw at litigation and they've got funds funds to throw at purchasing competitors and that just means that they constantly keep their stranglehold over payments no matter how it goes and also no matter whether the innovation is actually coming from them or someone else so the solution is complicated but i think we can at least start with competition authorities standing up to deals like this and properly scrutinizing them and in many cases they need to be saying no so a warning to merchants and regulators alike to keep visa and mastercard away from open banking but with true layer for example being able to process government payments. We hope that this signals the start of a real boom in open banking and the competition that it could provide with cards and subsequently the benefits that it could bring to the merchant community. We hope this week's podcast has been insightful and you can check out the full retail payments review at cmspi.com under resource hub. And if you find this helpful, please do share it with anybody you know who might enjoy it and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to connect and get conversations going, so do connect with us on LinkedIn at CMSPI or drop us an email. Finally, then, thank you very much for listening today, and we'll be back next week for more trends. Mm-hmm.